0: Play Cyberpunk 2077. Drive supercars, battle corporations, and upgrade your body. That's what I'm talking about! Cyberpunk 2077.
1: Available December 10th on Xbox, PlayStation, PC, and Stadia. Rated Mature. Today on Something You Should Know. What happens to your credit score if you miss a payment on a credit card? Then, the science of living long and staying healthy. What's true and what isn't true about diet,
2: exercise, social connection, and sleep? The truth about sleep is slightly less clear-cut than people think. I mean, there's a widespread belief that there's an epidemic of sleeplessness, that we all sleep less than we used to, that everyone doesn't get enough sleep, and there just isn't any evidence that that is true. Also, the power of being nice, how a couple of former
1: presidents used it effectively, and how to negotiate better, from a true legend in negotiation.
0: In negotiation, dumb is better than smart. Inarticulate is better than articulate. And you want to train yourself to say, I don't know, I don't understand, help me. All this today on Something You Should Know.
1: We have a special message from Dell. They're offering you massive discounts on the best XPS and Alienware computers with Intel Core processors for Black Friday. You're getting early access to a curated selection of premium tech like Samsung TVs. Plus, there's free shipping on everything. Yes, everything. Whether it's for work, school, or fun, Dell has you covered. Call 800 by dell Or go to Dell.com slash Black Friday for up to $400 off. That's $800 by Dell. Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, and welcome to Something You Should Know. Something I like to remind you from time to time, especially if you're a relatively new listener, is that there are a lot of other episodes of this podcast to listen to. We are fast approaching episode 500. We're just a few, I think just a few episodes away from episode 500. And you can go back and listen to all the previous episodes, and most of them most of them hold up over time. And I think you'll find them really interesting. So wherever you're listening to this podcast, I invite you to go back and listen to the previous episodes as well. First up today, if you have good credit, even excellent credit, you probably have a high FICO score. And that's great. There are a lot of benefits to achieving and maintaining a high credit score. So what happens if you make a mistake and miss a payment on one of your credit cards or on your car loan? Well, according to MarketWatch.com, the penalty can be quite severe. It turns out your credit score could drop as much as 180 points, depending on your credit history and the severity of the late payment. And it could take quite a while to get it back. The overall impact of the late payment diminishes over time and eventually goes away, but it does stay there for quite a while the better your credit, the more you may feel the sting of that late payment. In fact, that potential 180-point drop is likely to happen to somebody with excellent credit. In other words, the higher the credit score, the farther it has to fall. If you missed your credit payment by a day or so, you probably don't need to worry. In most cases, lenders and creditors do have a grace period that can range from a few days up to 30 days. You might still get hit with a late charge, but they won't necessarily report it. Still, if you are late with a payment, it's a good idea to call and ask for forgiveness. If it's something you don't do very often, they will probably accommodate you. And that is something you should know. When you think about taking care of your health, and you probably think about that quite a bit, you likely think about diet and exercise and maybe sleep and social connection, but there is a lot of confusion and misinformation on those topics. So, if you want to live a long and healthy life, what does the latest science say to do? Well, that's what Graham Lawton is here to discuss. He's a science journalist who has studied this, and he's author of a book called This Book Could Save Your Life. Hi, Graham. Oh, thanks for having me on, Mike. Sure. So, let's start with diet, and And let's start with breakfast. Is, according to the science,
2: is breakfast the most important meal of the day? Breakfast is a really difficult one. And one of the things that we find in nutrition science is that individual people are incredibly different from one another. And one person's meat is another person's poison. So for some people, breakfast is probably the most important meal of the day. For others, Not so. Um, I've certainly recently been practicing intermittent fasting, which is a fasting regime where I don't eat for 16 or 18 hours and then have an an eating window. And that entails skipping breakfast largely, you know, quit eating about eight o'clock at night and resume about midday or one o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, And I find that really works for me. Um, And I'm a bit wary of the people saying it works for me because anecdote. uh, Anecdote is not the singular of of data, but I think when it comes to breakfast, I think it's a kind of personal choice. Some people choose to fast, some people feel better when they've eaten breakfast, and in this case, I think it really is a case of what makes you feel better and healthier is what you should follow.
1: And so that's a good example of you are doing intermittent fasting where you stop eating at 8 and you don't eat again till one o'clock in the afternoon the next day, and it works for you. What does that mean, it works for you?
2: Okay, well, intermittent fasting, we, we know the science behind it is pretty solid. So it's really good for you for many reasons. It helps to maintain decent blood sugar levels. It helps to maintain weight. Um, and it also cleans out a lot of the kind of gubbins. I don't know if that's a word that Americans are familiar with, but it's a great word. I think the kind of detritus that builds up in people's cells, and we know is directly responsible for age-related diseases like diabetes, heart disease, and those kinds of things. Uh, so that's the science behind fasting. And um, the personal take on it for me is that I find that it makes me—it helps me to maintain my weight, uh, which I've always struggled a little bit with. Uh, many people do. Um, It gives me a lot of mental clarity, which is, again, explicable through kind of evolutionary science. The assumption there is that people who are hungry uh, needed to be mentally clear in order to produce decent hunting strategies talk about uh, metabolism that's one of these words that gets tossed
1: around a lot and i don't think people have any idea what they're talking about where you know oh you've got to you know speed up your metabolism or this food you know speeds it up or you know so what is it and how do you affect it
2: Metabolism really is just the sum total of all of the biochemical reactions that are going on in your body at any one time. Um, And people seem to think that it means the digestion of food, and that's part of metabolism, but it's only a small part of metabolism. So I think I'll be very wary of somebody who says, you know, this food will speed up your metabolism there isn't really any evidence that people have faster or slower metabolisms by which we tend to mean they burn more energy from their food i mean metabolism is such a broad concept that i don't think it's actually particularly useful in terms of diet and fitness and health and we could talk about small parts of people's metabolism so I could return back to the idea of autophagy which is what um, fasting tends to produce that's a metabolic reaction that cleans out old proteins and that's a good thing that's helpful and useful for you and there are probably other tricks that you can pull with your uh, metabolism if you wish, one of them is simply to eat whole foods. Uh, We know that ultra-processed foods, even lightly processed foods, produce large glucose spikes when you eat them, and those are bad for you, they tend to lead to diabetes, they produce spikes of fat, which also tend to produce cardiovascular disease. So, yeah, I would be kind of wary of anyone who gives you advice about something to tweak your metabolism, unless they give you some more specifics. Well, often you hear that exercise increases your
1: metabolism, true?
2: If you mean it increases the amount of energy that you burn, then definitely true. You have to burn energy in order to exercise. It's kind of a given. But the thing about exercise is it's fabulous. It is. Uh, people always say if it was available in pill form, everyone would be taking it. And that is true because exercise really is the route to slowing down the aging process, to staying fit and healthy, having better metabolic health and fitness. Um, it's not actually a very good weight loss strategy believe it or not Uh, there's a saying that you can't outrun a bad diet and what tends to happen is people will exercise, they burn a lot of energy they feel very hungry and also very virtuous So might kind of reach for that extra slice of cake or another sandwich or whatever and kind of out. They they completely cancel out all of the calorific gains they've made. But that doesn't mean that exercise is not good for you. It's extremely good for most of the organ systems, all of the organ systems in your body, including your brain. But if you want to rely on it to get thin, you also need to go on a diet. Let's talk about calories because
1: there was a time when a calorie was a calorie and then people said no it's the carb calories that are really the bad ones and sugar calories are really bad and but there are still people who say no a calorie is a calorie so what does the science
2: say? Yeah I mean from a completely sort of thermodynamic point of view a calorie is a calorie but I think it's probably true that different people respond to different calories in different ways and that's largely down to the gut microbiome so the but the bugs they have growing in their gut. Some people are, have a microbiome that's more efficient at extracting energy from certain foods and less efficient at extracting energy from other foods. Um, and the, uh, well, there's also the fact that calories on food labels are derived from basically exploding the food in a special chamber and finding out how much heat comes off it. Now, that doesn't exactly mimic how our digestive systems deal with calories um so they're not entirely accurate food level labels but you know within reason they're they're not they're not far off to a first approximation they'll tell you how much energy is in the food carbs versus fats versus proteins um yeah again there's some evidence that particularly proteins are a little bit harder to digest a little bit harder to get the energy out of so if you're eating your calories in protein form you're probably getting less calories out of the food than are in it in the first place if that makes sense Carbs and fats, we digest quite easily. The difference with those is that carbs will produce a uh, glucose spike in your bloodstream. Fats will produce a fat spike, neither of which are good, but they're bad in different ways.
1: What about alcohol? There has always been this mantra of alcohol in moderation is fine, or, or maybe a little red wine is okay, might even be good for you. What's the state of affairs with alcohol?
2: Well, I mean, I think, the, I think the definitive word on that came out from the World Health Organization, which is—I know it's an organization that doesn't isn't held in particularly high esteem in, in certain circles in the United States, but it still is the most authoritative global source of health advice. And they essentially concluded that, that there is no such thing as a healthy dose of alcohol. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't drink. Uh, there are some reasons to think that alcohol might be beneficial in small amounts. It can help relieve stress, for example. Red wine definitely contains some compounds that may be kind of antioxidant properties and maybe we'll get onto antioxidants at some point. Another problem with health, particularly nutrition research, is an awful lot of it is funded by industries that have a stake, that have a skin in the game. And if you look at some of the alcohol research that suggests alcohol is good for you, you can often find the fingerprints of the alcohol industry all over it. So I would take the WHO advice and say that if you want to drink, you need to accept that it's not good for you. But hey, come on, it's worth it. You know, life's too short sometimes to, to to live like a monk. We hear
1: a lot lately about the importance of sleep and that people don't get enough sleep. It does seem that that sleep is really something we need to pay attention to
2: absolutely right but again the the truth about sleep is sort of slightly less clear-cut than people think I mean there's a widespread belief that there's an epidemic of sleeplessness that we all sleep less than we used to that everyone's terribly busy and doesn't get enough sleep and there just isn't any evidence that that is true Um, but the average person needs about seven and a half hours of decent sleep a night to get enough uh, and having more than that or less than that comes with all kinds of health problems now people struggle to sleep for all kinds of reasons people who work on sleep say that it's kind of the pillar the third pillar of good health alongside diet and exercise and you have to pay as much attention to your sleep as you do to what you eat and how much you work out. Uh, And there's all these kind of sleep hygiene regimes that you should follow to try and get good sleep. And they're kind of well known. They're things like, you know, sleep in a dark, quiet room. Yeah, Yeah, obviously. Um, Don't use your bedroom as a place to watch movies or to do anything sort of recreational other than what people do in their bedrooms. And if you follow those kind of sleep hygiene regimes you probably sleep better probably feel better um, and it has knock on effects too so we know that bad sleep is associated with some of those other cardiovascular problems diabetes those kind of things as is too much sleep and there are links between too little sleep and obesity and too much sleep and obesity so they're all kind of inter- they're all kind of interlinked with one another but i think that having talked about you know we can't all live like monks i think if you actually followed the all of the sleep hygiene advice life would become in many cases quite tedious so it's really difficult to follow a really good sleep regime but i think you know ultimately unless you have some kind of serious insomnia problem your body will guide you towards getting the right amount of sleep and that can include kind of catching up at the weekend which is not ideal but it's better than not catching up at all
1: We are discussing the science behind how to live a long and healthy life, and my guest is science journalist Graham Lawton. The name of his book is This Book Could Save Your Life. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in
2: to their one-on-one with Jamal,
1: a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta.
2: Making you old-fashioned today with Wild Turkey Bourbon 101. It just really stands up very well in a classic cocktail like the old-fashioned. It has that perfect boldness.
1: Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, America, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Do you own or rent your home? Sure you do. And I bet it can be hard work. You know what's easy? Bundling policies with GEICO. GEICO makes it easy to bundle your homeowner's or renter's insurance along with your auto policy. It's a good thing, too, because you already have so much to do around your home. Go to Geico.com to get a quote and see how much you could save. It's Geico easy. Visit Geico.com today. That's Geico.com. All right, Graham, so let's uh, switch gears here and talk about the science of weight loss because losing weight is a big goal for so many people. It's very, very hard. So what does the science say? Is
2: there one best way to lose weight yeah there is one way to lose weight and that is to eat less uh, that's the only way to guarantee the calories in calories out equation is rock solid and you will hear people saying it's not uh, we've already talked about calories a, a little bit but ultimately that thermodynamic equation of energy in versus energy out is the only thing that can cause you to shed fat, which is basically calories packed around your, your middle. Um, there was a big study done a few years ago, looking at all kinds of weight loss diets, you know, Atkins diet, F plan diet, you know, you name it, they looked at it. Uh, and what it found was that as long as a diet meant that you ate fewer calories than you burned you would lose weight regardless of the content of the diet. And they concluded from that that it is really all about energy in versus energy out. Uh, I agree with you. It's really difficult. We're surrounded by cheap, delicious, fat and sugar laden food. And, you know, it takes you maybe five seconds to eat as many calories as you would burn if you ran for an hour. Uh, so it's very, very easy to tip the equation in the wrong direction and unfortunately the only answer really is discipline what about vitamin supplements on the whole just don't Um, they really are not worth it there are a few exceptions Uh, one of them is vitamin d Uh, we know that people certainly people living at the latitude that i live at in in cold rainy britain don't get enough sunshine in the winter to pr- produce vitamin D naturally and you do need a bit of supplementation but pretty much every supplement that you could think of actually either doesn't work or is actively dangerous um, the details are complicated but I would recommend if you're interested in taking supplements um, certainly avoid multivitamins certainly avoid vitamin E which has been linked with cancer uh, they simply don't work if you want vitamins Eat whole foods, particularly vegetables. They're full of them, including the antioxidants that people take, which also don't work. So, yeah, be be really wary. Um, I would actually also add that folic acid is definitely something that people who are trying to get pregnant or are pregnant should take, and that's men and women alike because we know that can prevent neural tube defects, things like spina bifida. So that's one of the ones which gets the thumbs up, but most of them are just a waste of money. There is that
1: philosophy that it's, it's just an insurance policy. If I take a multivitamin every day, I'm just covering my bases in case my diet is deficient. Is, and that, you say, is not a valid philosophy?
2: No. Most of those multivitamins contain vitamin E, which, is, as I said, uh, oral vitamin E is clearly linked with cancer, for reasons that are not particularly well understood. But huge studies have found that people who take vitamin E get more cancer than people who don't. Um, also, I mean, they also tend to contain iron, which is bad for you to take in supplement format. So yeah, it feels like an insurance policy. But why do you need an insurance policy when you could just eat some fruit and vegetables? What about salt? We hear bad things about salt. Others say, well, unless you have high blood pressure, it's probably not so bad. So, So how horrible is salt? salt is pretty horrible and this actually is a thing that comes up repeatedly there's a small kind of vocal group of people largely funded by big salt there's a thing called the salt institute which is actually a very profitable industry organization that likes to promote the idea that the salt scare is overblown Uh, you know we've heard this kind of stuff before from the tobacco industry and the alcohol industry and so on the science is pretty clear we don't need Anything like as much salt as we eat and the more salt we eat, the more fluid we retain, the higher our blood pressure and the greater the risk of cardiovascular disease. So yet again, I'm afraid that the the truth, as it were, is the boring old advice that you will hear uh, is to try to cut down on salt. Now, doing that actually is possibly even harder than trying to cut down on calories because as soon as you eat anything that you didn't prepare yourself, you've probably busted your salt budget uh, for the day because processed food is crammed full of salt it's t- tasty it's cheap processed food companies put it into their products to make them tastier and uh, you know you really only have to eat a couple of slices of commercially produced bread and i'm afraid your salt budget has gone out the window for that day i mean another, th- another reason for thinking about cutting down on salt is because it causes fluid retention most people are carrying around one or two kilos of extra water that they really don't need so if you're interested in losing a couple of kilos quite quite easily ditch the salt cook the food yourself uh, what about loneliness that's it's
1: kind of a, a little different than most of the other topics but but it does play a role yes
2: yeah i mean loneliness is actually considered to be one of the most neglected public health problems in the world and i haven't seen any recent research on it, but i imagine it's probably got much worse uh, with lockdowns and social distancing and so on with the pandemic um and yeah humans are evolved to be a social species and we require social interaction it's not a nice to have it's a must-have for human well-being particularly mental health and people who are lonely um, tend to have worse health than people who smoke Um, it's been compared to kind of having a 20 or 30 a day cigarette habit that's how bad it is for you to to be lonely Uh, I mean again there are kind of obvious ways to try and combat loneliness, which is reach out to people, try and maintain a kind of healthy social networks. It's not always possible. And I accept that some people are kind of chronically lonely, but yeah, it's one of those things that people neglect or they assume that it's people just kind of like belly aching about being lonely, but it's a genuine health problem and it's getting worse and it's particularly bad in Western countries where people spend an awful lot of time on social media, which is a pretty poor substitute for actual social interaction, or they watch TV. What's the what's
1: the latest on red meat? People, you know, take, very, take a lot of pride in saying, you know, I don't eat
2: red meat, be, as if that means that they're healthier. Are they? Uh, yeah, there was a, a recent uh, sort of U-turn, a bit like the ones that you were mentioning on, uh, I think wine was the one that you picked out, where suddenly red meat, which had been seen as being quite unhealthy, suddenly was claimed to be healthy again. Well, that research turned out to be not particularly well done, and I think, again, the consensus still stands is that red meat is in in large quantities which by which we mean something like more than say two burgers a week is not good for you for various reasons it's very high in the bad fats Um, it contains lots and lots of iron type compounds which are not necessarily that good for you Um, I know people take pride in eating red meat um, as if they're kind of sticking twos up at their kind of health police but i think it's worth bearing in mind again let's return to the world health organization Uh, a few years ago they had a look at everything that supposedly caused cancer and they found that very few of the things that supposedly cause cancer in people's diets that is um are carcinogenic but the one thing that they could definitely say was carcinogenic was red and processed meat so processed red meat is particularly bad Uh, again I don't think anyone would say never eat red meat. You know, if you eat red meat, you're going to drop dead at the drop of a hat. You're not. But it's not a particularly healthy food in large quantities.
1: If you want to live a long, healthy life, what's the best advice there
2: is? Yeah, so... Aging is a kind of, we understand very well now what's going on in aging, but all of the things that happen to you, all the kind of kind of frightening and horrible things can be slowed down by eating well, by exercising well, by maintaining a decent weight, by sleeping well. If you follow this kind of anti-aging regime that I've laid out, according to the best science that we have, uh, you will postpone that moment when you have, unfortunately have to sort of shuffle off because aging is a malleable Process exercise in particular is really good at retarding aging the, one of the reasons that I fast is that fasting is also a pretty well proven anti-aging strategy So unfortunately, you know, there's that old saying isn't there that um, fasting and exercising Won't necessarily make you live forever, but it'll make it feel like that But the problem of course is that you can live longer, but but you
1: get those extra years really late in life when it's nowhere near as much fun as if you had more of your 20s Uh, or 30s.
2: Yeah, of course. Now, in aging circles, there is no longer a kind of focus on longevity, uh, on lifespan per se. What they all talk about is this thing called health span, which is the idea that you get more healthy years. So you don't just sort of pile up years at the end of life when you're decrepit and suffering from all kinds of age-related disorders. The idea really is to compress that period of late-life morbidity into the shortest possible period of time. So that the idea is that you would be healthy and fairly youthful up to say 80, 85 and then decline quite rapidly and die. That's really now the goal of anti-aging research. So rather than prolonging people's agony, you prolong their pleasure.
1: Well, this is good information I think people need to hear. And I like the fact that it's coming from you. You're a science journalist. You have no particular axe to grind. You don't come from a particular point of view. You're just investigating and reporting the science. Graham Lawton has been my guest. And the name of his book is This Book Could Save Your Life. And you'll find a link to that book in the show notes.
2: Thanks for being here, Graham. Thanks, Mike. It's been a real pleasure to be on your show.
1: Several years ago, when I first started interviewing people for my radio show, one of the very first interviews I ever did was with a man named Herb Cohen. At the time, he was one of the best-known experts on negotiation, and throughout his career he has been involved in some very high-profile negotiations, as you're about to hear. And he believes anyone can negotiate just about anything better. Back then, he wrote a book called You Can Negotiate Anything, and that book is still one of the best books out there on negotiation. And he's still going strong. Herb Cohen is a great guy, a real character, and it's a pleasure to have him on the podcast today to talk about negotiation.
0: Hi, Herb. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
1: So when you say you can negotiate anything, people think of negotiation as being the thing you do with a car and a house and the big maybe the bigger things in life. And you say no, there's other things you can negotiate, which I don't even I think people don't even think about.
0: Anything that is the product of a negotiation that comes into being as a result of a negotiation is negotiable and people have more power than they think they have and i like to believe there is a lot of injustice in this world and people can do something about that in fact i always believe the door of justice swings open but only if you're willing to push I often tell the story about a prisoner being in solitary confinement. And, you know, when you're in solitary confinement, Michael, you walk around without a belt or shoelaces. And so this guy's holding up his pants. And the prisoner, you know, desires a cigarette. He knocks on the, the steel door, and the guard swings the slot open and says, Well, what do you want? said, i like a cigarette, please. God slams the bolt. He comes back and says, I'd like to speak to you. And the guy says, what do you want? And he says, look, I want a cigarette. And if I don't get a cigarette, within one minute, I intend to bang my head up against that stone wall until I'm unconscious. And when they revive me, I intend to tell them, you did it. Now, they won't believe me, but ultimately think about all the hearings you'll be attending, the paperwork you'll be filling out. So I asked the question, can the guy get that cigarette? Probably, yes. In other words, people have more power than they realize. And uh, if you start out thinking that virtually everything is negotiable, it is. And it's, it's simple. To believe you've got power and you could impact on your surroundings and so when you're
1: going to negotiate something that maybe most people don't think of as negotiable how do you start the conversation how do you bring up negotiation into a conversation that normally doesn't get negotiated and maybe using an example would help
0: first of all you want to regard negotiation as a game. And that's why I say you want to care about this, really care, but not that much. And so you don't fall in love with what you're negotiating over. You fall in like, and you recognize you've got options. And so it's a game, and it's best played as a game of addition not subtraction or exclusion. In other words, you don't want the other guy to be a loser. You want a deal where both of you feel good about it and both of you gain. And that's possible if you see negotiation as something rather simple and take the emotions out of it. And so... I always start every negotiations off in a collaborative way, in a congenial manner, with what I refer to as a low-key pose of calculated incompetence. And I tell them, if, if I'm buying, let's say, in a retail store, I really like your item, I appreciate how much time you're spending with me, but Unfortunately, I don't have that kind of money. Can you help me? And invariably, the salesperson or everyone you're interacting with tends to help you. Now, are there some people who are ruthless and say, hey, I could take this guy? Yes, there are. You know what those people do? They invest in the relationship. They spend more time. Because they think they're going to victimize you. And once people invest, it's hard for them to divest. So I get what you're saying, that that you
1: don't want to care too much, that you don't want to be too wrapped up in whatever you're negotiating. And I also know that you're, you're a big proponent of be prepared to walk away.
0: So talk about that. I don't know whether you remember this. Um, about 25, 30 years ago, Uh, General Motors uh, had this Oldsmobile car, and they had the Rocket Olds engine. Well, they ran out of Rocket Olds engines, so they decided quietly to put Chevrolet engines in this Oldsmobile car. When the public found out about it, the consumers who bought the car, they were very upset. And it was a big class action lawsuit, and it went on for a couple of years. And finally I was brought in to try to settle it. And I'm sitting there with the plaintiffs on one side of the table. This is at the Hyatt house in Chicago and all of general motors, big wigs are on the other side. So they were saying, you know, they didn't like my attitude. And, uh, cause I was taking this hard line and, uh, one of the people who represented GM said, you know, we're a pretty big company, not just our company, but our suppliers, and you'll never work for General Motors again. At this point, I stood up. And I remember saying, I'm 60 years of age. And when I look back on my life, I could say it was a good life. I have a wonderful wife and nice children and Things have been good for me. I make a living, and uh, I have nice friends. And so if I die tomorrow, even though I've never negotiated a deal or worked for General Motors, I could still say it's a good life. So I don't really care. At this point, I sat down at the table. The General Motors spokesman said, Okay, we offer you $20 million. In other words, I in effect, said, I have other options. I care. Uh, Not that much. I'm prepared to walk away. And that's how you want to see negotiations.
1: Have you ever been in a negotiation where somebody walked away from you?
0: (laughs) Many a time. Concessions and agreements occur in proximity to a deadline. And so... Very often, you know, I am calm at the deadline. I've had these people, they close their briefcase, their books, they're packing up, they're leaving. And I turn to them and I say, not that it's over. Where did I go wrong? What could I have done? What should I have done? Help me. These guys think it's over. I'll tell them. And they tell me, well, if you took this approach or that approach. And so you know what I do? I take this approach or that approach. And so I resurrect deals that have already gone down. Breakdowns are potential breakthroughs. Every exit is an entrance someplace else. And so I don't despair. You said in in
1: the beginning that you more or less play dumb, that you pretend you're you're not that bright. And I think most people will go into a negotiation armed with all the information that they know everything.
0: Well, that's a mistake. See, in negotiations, dumb is better than smart. Inarticulate is better than articulate. And you want to train yourself to say, I don't know. I don't understand. Help me. Think, who are the best negotiators in our culture? Probably it's children. Children are little people in a big person's world. They are people without formal authority, yet they seem to get what they want. Now, uh, how do kids do it? Number one, they aim high kids expect more and they know if you expect more you tend to get more and so they make unreasonable demands the second thing that kids do is they understand that no is an opening bargaining position and so they tend to persist uh, no means no right this second and I'll ask 20 minutes later
1: you have been negotiating for a long time and you are considered one of one of the experts on the topic and one of the best negotiators around. So talk a little bit about some of the negotiations, the high-profile negotiations that you have personally been involved in.
0: We we have one treaty that has held up with Russia or the Soviet Union and that's long-range ballistic missiles, uh, what we call the START. And the head negotiator was Ed Rowney, General Rowney, and I worked with him uh, on that negotiation. The Soviet Union had like uh, 500 missiles. Each one could blow up the planet, and we had like 2,700 This was, by the way, in 1985. I negotiated that. I gave President Carter advice on the Iran hostage crisis. And people say afterward, he should have listened to me. And uh, I understood the Iranians. See, one of the things you want to do is get into the world of the other side. You want to try to see things the way they see it. Because we don't see things as they are each of us see things as we are i was one of the people involved in setting up the fbi's hostage negotiating program i was involved in the nfl football players strike i worked for the then nfl players association
1: So what is your advice strategically when you're negotiating with somebody? At what point do you feel comfortable asking for what you want? This is what I want.
0: I start out having an objective in mind. And the objective is generally quantifiable, specific, precise. It's measurable. So... Very often, I'm surprised that I could do better than my objective. But people should always set objectives, always should set goals. Because if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. In fact, if you don't know where you're going, you can never get lost. And if you don't know where you're going, when you get there, you're not even sure you're there. So I generally have... An objective in mind. I'm willing to use time and I'm willing to recognize that sometimes dumb is better. I realize that the most effective negotiations are in person. And so I could personalize the situation. The worst negotiations are via email or anything where you can't see the person to get feedback. So the second best thing after in-person negotiations is to negotiate on the phone. Then I try to differentiate my offer from other people. For example, I once went to buy a condo in Vail and we saw this condo and it was $600,000. And uh, they already had two offers for $600,000. And so I said, you know, to my wife, I'll get this for less. She said, how could you do that? I said, I'll show you. So I offered, like, I think, like five eighty, And they said, please, Mr. Cole, we avail. Uh, we don't haggle or chisel here. Advance. So what I did was I changed my offer. I still offered 580, only the other people's offer was subject to their obtaining a mortgage at a certain rate within a certain period of time. So I offered 580 cash right on the head. I'll pay you cash. Okay no mortgage, no conditions, you know, and they took it, I got it, and the next week I spent my time running around the banks because I didn't have any cash trying to get a loan, and I did get a loan, and ultimately I had that condo for about 30 years. When you
1: talk to people or you watch other people negotiate and watch mistakes they make, or what advice can you give that maybe people don't think about that would make them a better negotiator?
0: What people should learn to do is ask more questions rather than give answers. Listen more, you know, rather than talk. When people tell you things, take notes. Now, individuals say to me, I'm, I'm dealing with idiots. I don't want to take notes. But it's very effective because that so-called idiot sees you writing down what he said, and he's appreciative. It's like you're the first guy that's ever written down anything he ever said. So you really improve the climate. See, the key thing to negotiating is how you do it. How is more important than what? So that's the key nugget I would pass along, your approach. And I continually use what I call the magic words of negotiation. These are words, they're three letters, no big deal. And the first one is spelled H-U-H and it's pronounced, huh? And the second one is W-H-A. There's no T on this and it's pronounced, what? And I integrate the two. Oh, well. And instantly, you find that the other side relates to you. In other words, one of my strategies in life is to make people feel superior to me. In some cases, I concede you have to work very hard. But nevertheless, this is a game. Have fun. Well, if I'm going to take
1: advice on how to be a better negotiator, I'm I'm going to take it from you. You've been doing this a long time and you sure seem to know what you're doing. Herb Cohen has been my guest. He is a legendary negotiation expert and the name of his book, he's got several. One is called You Can Negotiate Anything and there's a link to that book at Amazon in the show notes. Thank you, Herb.
0: Thanks, Mark. Bye-bye. <music>
1: Being nice sometimes gets a bad rap, but it shouldn't, because being nice has real benefits, according to Linda Kaplan-Thaler, who is author of a book called The Power of Nice, and she has been a guest on this program. She points out that a couple of former U.S. presidents used the power of nice to be successful. For example, in the Revolutionary War, when Americans captured British soldiers George Washington made sure that the prisoners were treated like kings. His soldiers thought he was crazy, and he said, No, you don't understand. These prisoners are the future citizens of the United States. And that's exactly what happened. Those prisoners were treated so well that many ended up coming over to our side and staying here. Letting someone else take credit for your ideas might sound like you're being too nice, maybe even a doormat, But President Harry Truman once said, you can accomplish anything in your lifetime as long as you're willing to not worry about who takes credit for it. Being nice can usually get you a lot further in life than being a jerk. And that is something you should know. I hope if you enjoyed this podcast, you will subscribe if you don't already and share it with someone you know so they too can enjoy it.